0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at wwwebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Ephesians chapter 5. Welcome back. Some of you guys are here for the first time tonight. We're glad that you're here. I wasn't expecting snow, slash, well, I wasn't really snow, it was 35 degrees, That was pretty cold. So so I want, before we start tonight, because we're going to look at the works of the flesh, which is um, right before we get to the fruit of the Spirit. So we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but before we actually get to the fruit of the Spirit, we actually have to look in context as to what's happening And the verses surrounding that. So last week we looked at Galatians chapter 5 and we looked specifically at verses 16, or actually actually verses 16 and 17 and 18. And the whole point last week was that there is a battle in your heart and your soul between your flesh, your sinful nature and the Holy Spirit, and that the Christian life is one of a lifelong struggle, that you're always going to struggle with sin. And I said last week that the pure evidence that you're a Christian is that you do struggle with sin. So, welcome to the party. If you struggle with sin, that means you're actually a Christian, because that struggle is going to happen. Now, before we start with this passage of Scripture tonight, I want to draw your attention to the Old Testament. So two of the greatest acts of idolatry in the Old Testament tell us something very interesting about the hands, the works of your hands. So let's first of all, do you remember the Tower of Babel? What happened in Genesis 11? All the nations of the earth were gathered in one place. It was called the Plain of Shinar. It was probably... Babylon, and they erected this ziggurat-type monument to try to see if they could reach the heavens because they wanted to make a name for themselves. So in Genesis eleven four, this is the way Moses tells us, then they said, this is the people, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. I'm just going to make sure my phone's on silent. There we go. Let's build ourselves a city so that we can make a name for ourselves. So what were they trying to do? They were trying to rob God of his glory by creating something with their own hands that they could claim is something that that is their product. We built this with our own hands. We made a name for ourselves. Look how high we built this monument to ourselves. And what does God do? God kind of looks down there and he's like, oh, that's a tall monument? He scatters them and confuses their language and basically God judges them. But the point is, in the Tower of Babel, the people said, we want to make something with the works of our hands so that we can exalt ourselves. And it was basically an idol to take the place of God. So the Tower of Babel was an idol created with their own hands. What was the second greatest act of idolatry in the Bible that you remember? The golden calf in Exodus. What happened in the golden calf experience? Moses is on top of the mountain, he's been up there for a long time 40 days, 40 nights. The people get restless. They say, we want another God to lead us. And so Aaron gives in to peer pressure and takes all of their gold, and they make a golden calf. So let me read to you from Exodus 32, 3 through 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What did Aaron do with his hands? He fashioned the golden calf. So in both situations, with the Tower of Babel and the golden calf, humans were trying to make something with their own hands to take the place of God. They made for themselves an idol. So these acts of idolatry in the Old Testament, uh, they can be called works of the flesh, works of their own hands, human-made attempts to try to make a name for themselves, human attempts to try to create a God, human attempts to try to replace God, works of the flesh. So what did they do? They abandoned God, they followed their evil hearts, and they acted in sinful ways. Rebellion. These were works of the flesh that stemmed from evil hearts that wanted to replace God with an idol. Now, last week, if you remember, we started this whole discussion talking about the struggle with sin. And I made a kind of a provocative statement, not necessarily provocative, but I said, non Christians don't struggle with sin. And you're like, what? Let me say that again non Christians don't struggle with sin. Now, they commit sins, don't they? And they may be bothered by it from here to there. They may have a guilty conscience. But there's no internal struggle because non-Christians don't have the Holy Spirit. They haven't been born again. Those of us who are Christians have the Holy Spirit living in us, and we know what we should do, but our flesh goes against that. And so Galatians 5.17 says there's a battle. There's a battle going on in our hearts. It's a struggle. And that struggle will last until the day we step foot into heaven. We're always going to struggle with sin. And again, that's not an excuse to sin. It's just a reality that we are called to walk by the Spirit. So let's let's look at our passage of Scripture for tonight. Uh, Paul gets very specific, okay? So he's going to give us a list. Sometimes Paul gets specific and gives us a list of particular sins that helps us understand what these things are. So let's pick up where we were last week, just to kind of give the the, um, context. So Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay, so walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, Let the Holy Spirit dominate your life. There's going to be this battle between the Holy Spirit in you and the remaining flesh that's still in you. Even though you're saved, you still have to deal with that. And then here we go, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Next week, we'll start the fruit of the Spirit, okay? But before Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit, he gives us the works of the flesh. Now, here's the main point of this section of Galatians, okay? Pretty pretty point blank here. You won't get to heaven if you continue in a lifestyle of habitual and unrepentant sin. I've worded that very carefully. Habitual, unrepentant sin will prevent you from getting into heaven. Now, we're going to look at three main truths tonight from this passage of Scripture. Three truths that warn us about the dangers of gratifying the flesh. So let's look at these three things tonight. Here's the first. First of all, what we see in this passage of Scripture is the stark evidence of sin. The stark evidence. What does Paul say there in verse 19? The works of the flesh are what? They're evident. Does anybody have a different word in their translation besides evident? Manifest. Manifest. It means clearly known. Plain as day. In other words, it doesn't take a nuclear scientist or a brain surgeon to come up with a list of sins. You and I know by experience and by what the Bible says what specific sins are. And interestingly, notice what Paul says. Now the works of the flesh are evidence. This is very important how Paul words this. Because next week when we start talking about the fruit of the Spirit... These are works of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's ask the question, why are they called works of the flesh? So how come Paul didn't say, now these are the fruit of the flesh, and these are the fruit of the Spirit? Like a parallel statement there, fruit of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say that, works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. So what are works of the flesh? Let me define it for you. Works of the flesh are activities or sins that we produce in our fallen condition. These are products of our own heart, mind, hands, mouth that stem from our sinful and conniving condition where we try to do things in our own flesh, our own power. Just like drawing you back to the golden calf and the Tower of Babel, these are things we do in our fallen nature that we produce out of our own sinful hearts. These are works of the flesh that we end up doing. And so, works of the flesh have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Who's doing the works of the flesh? We're doing the works of the flesh. With our own hearts, our own minds, our mouths, any activity, outward action. And so, we need to understand two important truths related to this issue of the the, the works of the flesh being plain, being evident. Here's truth number one. First of all, we sin because we are sinners and not the other way around. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Or let me ask it a different way. What comes first? Is it your nature that causes you to sin? Or do you sin out of a state of neutrality and just kind of do it? Where does the sin stem from? Your heart, your, heart, your nature. Okay, so every single person is born in a sinful condition that we inherited from Adam. Now what does Jesus say about where sin comes from? Mark 7, this is them out of the mouth of Jesus himself. So, what does Jesus say? Mark 7, 20 through 23, he says this. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. So, out of the heart, what comes out of the heart? He li- Jesus gives us a list here. It's very similar to the list that Paul gives us. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what is the source of the works of the flesh? It is your heart. We talked about this last week. Where does sin always start? In your heart and in your mind and in your desires. Then you act out upon it. Why did you commit a sin? Because it was first part of your nature. It was first part of your heart. It came from within. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus has a list here that's very similar to what Paul gives. And it's very similar to the Ten Commandments, although there's some internal sins as well. So, the works of the flesh that we commit outwardly. So, these aren't thoughts of the flesh. These are works of the flesh. They're things that we do outwardly. They're actions, usually. Words, actions, or activities they actually come from our internal heart, our internal nature. So let's just make, my am be really clear here. Even though we have been regenerated, we've been born again, we've been saved, even though we're made new, we still have to battle with remaining sin. God does not take the sin away from us when we get saved. It's still there. That's why verse 17 says there's a battle. And you're not going to ever end that battle, ultimately, until you get to heaven. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sometimes, people want to downplay sin, and they'll say, well, I just kind of have a, that's just my personality. That's just the way I was born. That's the way I was raised. I really can't help it. No, that's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. We can kind of explain away these things as, no, they're not that big of a deal. Okay. Jesus and Paul both call these things dangerous. So much so, we'll talk about this in a moment, that heaven and hell hang in the balance on these things. So if you're a Christian, you can't plead ignorance because there's a list here. And Paul says it's evident. Well, I didn't know what it was. Read the list. I don't know what it was. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a list. So the more specific a list you have, the more accountable you are because you know what that list is. All right. So first truth related to works of the flesh. These works of the flesh come from a sinful heart. Second truth under this big category that they're evident. Since this is a stark reality okay, it's a start, they're plain, they're evident, the works of the flesh are evident, they're there, we know it, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts by this passage of Scripture that's very specific. Here's my point. When you have a list, that means you need to get specific. Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Generic. Okay, what particular sins are you asking forgiveness for? It's easy to be generic in our sin-confessing. Lord, please forgive me of my sins, and just kind of move along with your day. Lord, please forgive me of pride. Please forgive me of lust. Please forgive me of gossip. There's specific sins here. So when we look at this list, the purpose of a list is for you to look at the list and say, wow, which ones do I struggle with? It's not a comprehensive list, because Paul says, and things like these, but it's a pretty long list. So you need to, tonight, when we read this list, right now, do these two passages of scripture I'm going to read to you from the Psalms, okay? Psalm one nineteen one hundred five 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need God's word to light our path tonight. And this is a prayer you should be praying all the time from Psalm 139, 23, 24, great prayer. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We should be praying that prayer tonight as we look at this list and say, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life from this list that's evident that I need to deal with? Please search my heart. Because sometimes, and I know you because I've been there too, when a pastor starts to preach and he starts talking about sin... You start thinking about other people, you know, like, oh, that person has that sin. My my wife needs to be here to listen to this. My kids need to be, oh, oh, yeah, my neighbor, I wish they were here to hear this. They need to hear about these sins. We project it on other people. We don't ever stop and think, oh, maybe I need to deal with these sins myself. So don't start letting your mind wander to how these sins affect other people around you. Let's do some internal um, searching of ourselves and ask the Lord to search our hearts. So the first thing we see tonight, big ticket item, is These are evident. They're as plain as day. And they come from a heart. And because they come from our heart and because they're evident, we need help to deal with them. So we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us help. Okay, second big ticket item. This is where we're going to spend most of the time tonight because this is where most of the scripture is. Second, we see the sinister list. The list of sins. And Paul gives 15, okay, 15 sins that are very specific. Now think about this. Paul could have said this, okay? He could have said, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then skip down to verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. He could could say they're evident and just say, the works of the flesh are evident. If they're evident, then why does he give a list? (laughs) Paul, why'd you give a list if they're evident? Because what do we tend to do? Get very generic with our sins. So, The reason we have a list is not because God's trying to thump us with a list. Actually, it's an act of grace, because here's the point. (coughs) God, in his grace, has given us a list so that we're not in ignorance and so that we can truly see what flies in the face of his holy will. Now... It's interesting how Paul divides up this list of 15 sins. Okay, so 15 total sins, but they're divided into four major categories. He categorizes them together in sins that are similar. Not exactly the same because there's 15 different Greek words used here. So let's look at the first big category of sins that Paul does. And usually this is always the first almost on all the lists that Paul gives. And the first category is sins of sexual immorality. Okay, so under this big category, Paul gives three um, particular sins. So he gives sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are all very similar. They're at the end of verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's a grouping. So tonight we're going to look at each of these 15 sins and I'm going to kind of define them for you in a little bit more detail based upon the original language and what they may mean. So what is sexual immorality? The actual Greek word is porneia. We get our word uh, whoops, let me go back. We get our, our word uh, porn from that, porneia. And it's a catch-all. It is any illicit sexual activity that's not in the confines of a legal and covenant marriage between one man and one woman. I have to say that Today, between one biological man and one biological woman in a lifelong covenant. So pornea includes what we call fornication, sex before marriage sex outside of marriage, adultery, homosexuality, bisexuality, incest, bestiality, or any other sin that's not between a covenant husband and wife, one biological man, one biological woman, and covenant marriage. So just think of it this way. If it's any sexual activity that's not between a married couple of the opposite sex, biologically, then it's considered sexual immorality. And this has been all throughout the Bible. And Jesus even had that on his list as well. So this is the big category, sexual immorality, any type of unlawful, um, unscriptural sexual relations that are not between a covenant husband and wife. Okay, the next word he uses is impurity. This word deals more with the uncleanness or impurity that comes from the sexual immorality, the impurity that it, that it comes from that. Um, Romans 1.24 has the same concept. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's, <laughs> it's the impurity, the dirtiness that comes from the lust of the flesh. So it's not only the physical act, or even the sexual thoughts, but it's the uncleanness and purity that comes from that. And then the third thing he says on here is sensuality. Now, this is extreme sexual immorality where you lack any type of restraints. It's unbridled or reckless sexual activity. In the Greek language, it was oftentimes used for a dog in heat. Okay? Just unbridled, out of control, sexual types of perversions. Jeremiah 6.15 Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At that time I punish them. They shall be overthrown says the Lord. Okay, here's the point. Do we not live in a culture that doesn't know how to blush? What does it mean to blush? I'm I'm embarrassed because of what I've done. We live in a culture where people don't blush anymore because it's so flagrant. <laughs> I don't care what people think. It's my body. I'm going to do what I dang well please, and I'm going to do it to the max. And if you have a problem with it, you're, it's your problem. Isn't that the culture we live in right now? Flagrant, out of control unbridled sexual immorality 1 Corinthians I'm sorry 2 Corinthians 12 21 Paul says I fear that I want to come again my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they practiced the same three words there that he uses here in Galatians so let me just be very clear. Let me be very clear. Let me, get, let me, let me make the list even more clear. Because back then in that culture, they would have known what sexual immorality meant. If you said pornea, they would have known what the categories are. So let me just give you what's under this category. Okay, so there's no confusion. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexual acts, bisexual acts, pornography, immoral conversations, dirty jokes, lust in your hearts, fantasizing about sex with someone not your spouse, dressing inappropriately to draw attention to your sexuality, over-the-top flirting, and anything else you can think of that deals with sexual morality. And what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 27 through 28. What did he say? You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. Outward action. Ooh, don't commit adultery. That's a big one. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says there's the outward action and there's the heart. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the first category is sexual immorality. With these three words, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So list of 15 sins, four big categories. That's the first. Now let's move on to the second big category, and these are sins of pagan idolatry. Now, let's talk about the culture here for a moment that Paul's writing to. Paul is addressing the church in Galatia, steeped in Greek culture. You guys know anything about Greek mythology? Gods and goddesses, all the different gods, all the different goddesses, all different, like Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and... and all, so. The Galatians are steeped in a culture of pagan idolatry all around them. He's not talking to the Jews here who grew up in the synagogue and believed in the one true God of Israel and just needed to be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He's talking to people that came out of a pagan background that may have been idol worshippers before they became Christians. They may have worshipped Zeus. They may have worshipped Dionysius, which was the god of orgies and drunkenness, or they may have worshiped um, apollos all these different gods and goddesses so th- what he says there we're moving into verse 20 now idolatry this literally means in the greek language bowing down to an idol like serving an idol bowing down to an idol what's the first commandment of the 10 commandments exodus 20 1 through 3 God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now let's just stop and talk about idolatry for a moment. Does an idol always have to be a bad thing? Or can it be, can you make a good thing into an idol? Is your family a good thing? Can it become an idol? Is your job a good thing? Something you're like, that may not be a good thing, it may be a bad thing. Is making money a good thing? Can it become an idol? Is a relationship with somebody a good thing? If you're married or a boyfriend, girlfriend, or you're in a close relationship, is that a good thing? Can it become an idol? So an idol doesn't have to be like a bad thing, like a statue of Buddha in your backyard that you go out and you know, bow down to and light candles to. It can be anything that takes the place of God. Anything that takes the place of God. Somebody said this, I can't remember. When a good thing was it? When a good thing becomes a bad thing. No. I can't remember what it said. I, I I, when a good, good thing doesn't become a god thing, it becomes I can't remember what it said. Don't don't pay attention to that. I don't I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what they said, and obviously I didn't remember it because it's not in my notes. Idolatry. Okay. The next thing he puts on the list is very interesting. Sorcery. Sorcery. This is witchcraft, black magic, and in that culture that involved drugs. Let me give you the Greek word there. It's pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. They would often have hallucinogenic drugs that they would take that would put them in a situation where they would go into occultic trances where they would communicate with demons and do a bunch of weird types of witchcraft related to drugs. So sorcery back in that culture was highly related to hallucinogenic drugs. So any type of black magic, any type of um, occultic behavior, um, seances, Ouija boards, um, tarot cards, anything you can think of that would be getting into the occultic turning off your mind through mind-altering chemicals. Um, Think about this for a moment. If you are under a hallucinogenic drug and you you have mind-altering chemicals and you're not in your right mind, is it easier for demonic forces to come in and influence you? Yes. So, sorcery. Leviticus 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut him off from among his people. I think I already explained this, but I'll I'll give it to you in writing here on your sheet. Um, In that ancient culture, many religions would incorporate drugs or hallucinogens to heighten their mystical experiences. In these occultic practices, they would also use abortifacient drugs in order to kill their children in the womb. Part of this sorcery was also abortion, according to that culture. Because if you were in a mind-altering state, it may have dulled the pain when they did perform an abortion on a woman. Revelation 9.21 Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, you may think, okay, this list doesn't apply to me. I don't worship idols, and I don't do drugs, and I don't do black magic. I'm safe. But let me just ask the question. Is there anything in your life that you've elevated to an idol that's taken the place of God, good or bad? Let me give you a quote from Tim Keller. Um, In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Um, He writes this, The true God of your heart is what you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart. When you pull your emotions up by the roots, as it were, you will often find your idols clinging to them. What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What do you think about? What what if if something was taken away from you and crush you? What do you spend all your time and energy on, focusing on, good or bad, that could possibly become an idol? Okay? So the first major category in this list of 15 sins, sexual sins, to pagan, sorcery, idolatrous, drug-hallucinating type sins. Third category. This is probably where we struggle a lot. Third category is sins of relational disunity. It's the longest of the list. So out of all the 15, the, this category is the longest grouping. Makes sense, right? Can't we all just get along? Sins of relational disunity. So let's look at this. Okay, so verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity. Enmity. This is is hatred. It's a fundamental attitude of hatred towards another person. I hate that person. I can't stand that person. That person makes my blood boil. I hate them. Strong language. (laughs) That you hate somebody. The second word there. Or I don't know what order it is, but the word we're looking at now. Strife. This word is usually associated with verbal conflicts where you're yelling at another person. You're, you're using biting words to cut them down. Strife is more the verbal abuse, cutting people down, yelling, raising your voice, uh, being hateful with your, with your speech. Proverbs 18.6. What does Proverbs 18.6 say? The fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. <laughs> Do you know that proverb was there? The fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Anybody ever got beaten up because they said something they shouldn't have said? <laughs> Some of you are laughing at that, like, oh, I know that one way too well. All right, 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. For you are all still the flesh, for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Strife, yelling, biting tongue, uh, your mouth's getting you in trouble by spewing hateful things, causing up strife. Okay, jealousy is the next one on the list. Jealousy. This is a very strong feeling of resentment or bitterness. This is where we get the word zealous. Zealous. You burned inwardly with red-hot, zealous bitterness towards somebody else. You are, you're, you're just burning with jealousy. Why do they always get what they want? I'm, I'm just I'm so burned up with jealousy of them, so much so that I resent them. So much so that it's led to bitterness. I can't be happy. I'm miserable because of what they're getting to experience that I'm not. I'm so jealous. Okay. Fits of anger is next on the list. Fits of anger. These are passionate outbursts of wrath, rage, and fury where you explode and fly off the handle. Erupting like a volcano. Fits of anger. You're out of control with your anger. Colossians 3.8 says but now you must put away all anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouths okay the next on the list is rivalries this is where we get the word selfish ambition what rivalries is is that you always want to be on top you want to look bigger and better than others you're inflating yourself. You're acting like you're all that. You want to get your way and move to the top by whatever means necessary. If that means stabbing somebody in the back, you're going to climb to the top of the ladder and use manipulative means to get there. Regardless of how many bodies are left behind you or how many people you trample over, it's all about me looking the best I can and getting to the top at all costs. Romans 2.8 But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Self seeking, as opposed to God seeking or others seeking. You know the order of life? Who comes first? God. Who comes second? Others. Who comes third? Me. I am third. All right, next. Dissensions. Dissensions. This is like breaking up into factions, different groups. So like in a church or in a family or in a company or in a team or any type where you're not unified, you have different factions. You have different groups breaking up, and they're pitting against each other. Um, Romans 16, 17 says... I appeal to you, um, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Dissensions, breaking up into factions, breaking up into groups, cliques, where you're clickish and you keep other people out and you gossip and talk about others and you're not unified. Okay, there's another word Paul uses here. The next word's divisions. Now this is where we get the word heresy. This is actually stronger because this is a person who's actually purposely trying to divide the body of Christ through false teaching, or gossip, or slander, or disunity. And Timothy and Titus have a lot to say about this. So 1 Timothy 6, 3-4, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. This is like a a pastor or a leader or a person or somebody that comes into a church and purposely tries to tear up the church through either false teaching or slander. Has any of you ever been in a church that's gone through a split? Because there was somebody or a group that brought slanderous accusations or started teaching things that were false that just basically destroyed the church. That's what Paul's talking about here. And Titus 3.10 says this. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. You warn him once, stop what you're doing. You warn him twice, you better stop what you're doing. A third time, what do you do? Give him a Give them the boot or bring them to the elders for us to give them the boot. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that for a moment. Is it always Pastor Sean and the elders' responsibility to deal with conflict in the church? or who, Where should the front line always happen? Should it get to the point where it has to come to us or, or should it be dealt with at the level where you guys are? If you see a divisive person, what should you do to that person? Gossip about them behind their back, get a faction to go and say, what should you do? warn them once, what you're doing is sinful, you need to stop, if you don't stop, I'm going to have to get somebody to come help you stop, to keep doing it, warn them another time, so there's got to be some steps there, okay, envy, now you say, well, why is envy, how is that different than jealousy, okay, it's different than jealousy, there's a difference between jealousy and envy, Jealousy says, I'm burning with inner anger because I don't have what they have. I'm bitter. I'm resentful. Envy actually takes it a step further and says, not only am I bitter that they have what they have, but I wish ill on them because of what they have that I don't have. I wish they would get hurt. I wish they'd get hit by a truck. I wish they'd get the coronavirus and die. I wish they lose that job. I wish her husband leaves her because I want something really bad to happen to them because I'm so jealous of them. That's what that word means. So James 4, 1 through 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay, so, this, so, so let's talk about these 15 sins. Category number one, sexual sins. Category number two, pagan, idolatry, witchcraft, sorcery type sins. Third category, relational sins. You know, jealousy, anger, divisions, quarreling, fighting, you know, using bad language towards others, slander. And then here's the fourth category of this big list of 15. Sins of excessive debauchery. Sins of excessive debauchery. Okay, so what are the last two on the list? Drunkenness and orgies. Now, in that ancient Greek culture, they would have, obviously, alcohol, where you would get drunk. And the Bible doesn't condemn drinking alcohol. Okay, so I will never up here as a pastor say, thou shalt not drink alcohol, because I can't find a Bible verse that says that. I would be legalistic if I said that. What I can say is the Bible condemns drunkenness. So it's not a sin to drink in moderation. It's a sin to get drunk. Because what happens when you get drunk? You lose control. You're you're under the influence. Okay, so Romans 13.13 says this. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy. It's interesting that passage right there kind of summarizes everything he's saying in Galatians: orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarrelling, and jealousy. Ephesians 5:18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, why does Paul list orgies? That sounds like kind of extreme. What's going on there? Okay, I've talked about this before, especially when we did our study of the book of Revelation. There were these um, trade guilds. Whoops, let me go back. There were these trade guilds that you would belong to. So let's say you were a silversmith or you were an ironsmith or you were a pottery worker. You would go to the pottery worker party. And when you would go to the pottery worker party that was mandatory for your job, they would have... An orgy. So it was required for your job to show up, get drunk, and have sex with as many people as you could at the orgy because the Greek god Dionysius was the god of debauchery. And if you didn't show up at these orgies and drinking parties, you could possibly lose your job. So it was kind of a big deal back then. So the four categories. Number one, sexual sins. Number two, pagan, idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft type sins. Three, relational sins of disunity, quarreling, envy, strife. Fourth, just excessive debauchery, orgies and getting drunk, being under the influence. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. They've given themselves up to impurity. They've just given themselves up. They've given themselves over to a life of debauchery. 1 Peter 4.3 For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's the list of 15. And notice what Paul says at the end. And things like these. Obviously it's not a comprehensive list of every single sin you can commit, but probably think of some other ones to add to that but it's a representative list with four major categories of sins. So let's talk about those four major categories again. List of 15 here. Um, oh, Sins of sexual immorality, sins of pagan idolatry, sins of relational disunity, and sins of excessive debauchery. Okay, so we've looked at two big ticket items tonight. Number one, these are evidence. These works of the flesh are evident. They're things that you do out of the sinfulness of your heart. And then number two, Paul gives us a list so that we're not ignorant. And I said, let's examine ourselves according to this list tonight to see if we struggle with any of these. Because remember back in verse 17, we're going to struggle with these. Which one of these do we, which one or ones or two or three of these do we struggle with? Okay, so they're real. You're going to struggle with them. We know what they are, but here's the thing that's kind of scary. Here's the third thing we want to look at tonight. There's a severe warning. The severe warning of sins. Look at the end of verse 21. I warned you as I warned you before. So obviously Paul's warned him twice. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying when this word is used, he says, there is a dangerous future awaiting you with serious consequences if you continue in sin. So what's the warning? What does he say there? If You continue in unrepentant and habitual sin as your defining lifestyle, and we're going to talk about that here, men. You're in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Read it with your own eyes there. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What what does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? What does that mean? You won't go to heaven. Now, some of you may be thinking, Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm not going to heaven then because I struggle with these things. Is Paul saying, if you struggle with these things, you're not going to heaven? What's he saying? If you do these things. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek tonight, okay? Notice what he says there. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do Okay, do. In the original language, the word do is the Greek word for make it a practice or a habit. And it's in the present tense. So let me translate this for you, how, how we would literally translate that. Those who continually, constantly, as a lifestyle, make it their habit and practice of the totality of their life to do these things. So let me give you some hope tonight. This word that Paul uses, those who practice or do these things, does not mean an isolated or one-times lap or fall into sin, but he's talking about an habitual lifestyle. So let's just be real honest tonight. Will there be Christians who commit these sins? Will these Christians go to heaven? Yes. Yes. Yes, Brent. I would dare say that every one of us is guilty of some of those at some point in their life. Yeah, you would I mean, dare say, and I would dare say too. So here's the point. We have to read this in context. Because what does Paul say back? Read, read verse 17. Okay. Just right before this list, what does Paul say in verse 17? The desires of the flesh are against the desire of the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What is Paul saying? Paul is not saying, if you struggle with sin, you're not going to go to heaven. Because then none of us would go to heaven. We're going to struggle with sin. Some some of us will struggle with the same sin over and over and over again until the day we die. But as I said last week, you're not going to be dominated by that sin. You're not going to be ultimately captive of that sin because the Holy Spirit will ensure that you ultimately have victory. What Paul is saying here... What is Paul saying? Okay, What Paul is saying here is that a truly regenerate, saved person who is a new creation in Christ will struggle with sin. We will. But the works of the flesh, this list of 15... Will not, and this is a key word, ultimately define who you are and you will not be dominated by. All right, let me ask you a question Is there a difference between struggling with sins and being dominated by them in captivity as your livestock? Is there a difference there? I'm going to be realistic and say, as a Christian, you will struggle. But as a Christian, you won't be dominated. Now, here's the the catch. What happens if you claim to be a Christian and you are dominated in a habitual lifestyle of this? what does that mean? It means one of two things. It means you're not a Christian and you think you are. Or it means... You are a Christian, and you're in a deep, deep pit of disobedience. And because you are God's chosen, he's going to get you out. But the way he's going to get you out is through extreme discipline. Those are the only two choices you have. You're either not a Christian you think you are because you're dominated by sin and you're living this way, or you really are a Christian and you're living this way, and God says, that's not the way to live as a Christian. I'm going to get you out of this, and this may be really painful. So hold on for the ride. I'm going to get you out of it, but you may go through some serious pain to get there. Yes, Spark. I have a question about the anger. Isn't there justifiable anger? Mm-hmm. And what about, you know, like flying into a rage because um teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> teenagers. I plead, I plead teenagers. <laughs> That's a great one. He <laughs> yeah, had two questions. The first one's easy to answer. Um, <laughs> Yes, there is a time for justified righteous anger. Um, Jesus had a righteous anger when he went in and turned the tables over when he went in the temple. Um, you just need to make sure that the righteous anger doesn't turn to vengeance. It doesn't turn to rage. It doesn't turn to, to worse sins. But you can be righteously angry about some, like some type of injustice. But then you just have to be careful that it doesn't fester into bitterness or you take matters into your own hands. Now, teenagers, <laughs> I think you were joking with that, or maybe, no. maybe not. You weren't, you weren't joking. <laughs> so there's that, one passage, there's that one passage scripture in 2nd Hezekiah that says, if you have teenagers, you're exempt from any of these lists. <laughs> Number one, there's not a book of 2nd Hezekiah. So um, let's just say this. Having teenagers, and having raised one myself, and some of you have... And some of you're getting ready too, and some of you have them right now. Yeah, I'm looking around this room like, oh wow. I've got, you have got second th- generation. You teenagers. got four? Yeah, you got a granddaughter. You guys have four. You guys, are a couple. Well, you you're close to it. You're there. <laughs> you guys still have little kids. You're my same age. You're we're all the same. Age. You got teenagers. You got a one that's senior in high school. You've got a fourth grader that acts like a teenager, Rico. are they? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Deb, you've got, I mean, all, all, almost all of you here. Brent, you've raised three successful teenagers. He's like, great. Wow. No. He's out of it. <laughs> Man, I need to do a whole other class on how to raise teenagers. Um, yes, please. Yes, please. Some of you are like, yes, please, let's do this. How do you raise teenagers? <laughs> Very careful. Um, let's just put it this way teenagers will try your patience teenagers, teenagers <laughs> will do things here's 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 the thing we sometimes expect 13 year olds to act like 30 year olds did you guys know that most that the frontal cortex of the brain which is where people make their decision making and rational thought usually doesn't actually get fully grown or fully developed until like the early 20s and it's quicker for girls than it is for boys. So if you have a boy teenager, it takes a little longer to get things going. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, Barbara. Because that's a can of worms. But... Oh. Let's go back to the list here. About, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven if you continually practice these things as a lifestyle. Now, Paul gives a list elsewhere, but he gives us something that gives us hope. Okay, So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11... through Paul says this, Do you not know, in the same wording here, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same language, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not you may not, you will not. And then he lists, another list here. Do not be deceived the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty, pretty straight statement, right? But then notice what he says in verse 11. And such, what's the key word? Were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says here that lifestyle was your past that identified who you were. Now that you're a Christian, those things don't identify you. Those things don't dominate you. Those things aren't the totality of your life. Now, does that mean you'll never struggle with those things ever again? You may struggle, but you won't be dominated by them. But there's still the warning. you got to deal with the warning. Galatians, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. One other place... In Ephesians chapter 5, 5-6. through for Actually, there's two other places. Ephesians 5, 5-6. Five for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Same type of list. And then in the book of Revelation, 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, so this doesn't sound very um, politically correct. Stand up and say, you're not going to heaven if you live an unrepentant habitual sin in these areas. But what does the Bible say? Can you argue with these verses? I mean, you can argue with them, but are you going to win? Now, why are these warnings in the Bible? Paul says, I warned you as I warned you before. It's a question. Why are there warnings in the Bible written to Christians? Okay. The purpose these types of warnings is in the Bible is to confront those who are hypocrites and claim to be Christians but who in fact are not really saved. It's a shock to complacent sinners out of their habitual sin and see their dire need to repent. So, the list, the warning there is to basically be a wake-up call to someone who professes to be a Christian is living in unrepentant sin. I've said this many times before. You can profess to be a Christian. You can profess faith in Christ, but not truly possess faith in Christ. You can make a profession of faith, but not have possession of faith. You can say you're a Christian and not truly be a Christian. So these warnings are to shock people who are faking it out of their hypocrisy to say, whoa. I better get right with God and realize that I've been faking it and I need to repent. Because this is my lifestyle. This is is dominating me. This is the totality of me. It's not, I'm a Christian, I struggle with these things. This defines who I am. Now, if you're a true Christian, you're truly saved, this list is meant as a way for you to evaluate your heart in this internal struggle but not lead you to Despair. If you struggle with these things, you don't don't despair. You're like, okay, I'm struggling. I'm going to be realistic. I'm going to repent. I'm going to hate this lifestyle. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to run to Jesus for for strength. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to give me. I'm going to walk by the Spirit. If if you're a true Christian and you're confronted with these things and you're under conviction, what is a true Christian going to do? Be broken over their sin. Repent over that sin. Want to have the Holy Spirit change them. You know, there's some people in the Bible that did some pretty horrendous things. That we would put up there as like the top people in the Bible. So think about David for a moment. What did David do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered. But he was the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. What did Peter do? Peter denied Jesus three times. Both David and Peter repented and were broken over their sins. They were restored. Are these men defined by their fall or are they defined by their repentance? What defined these men? Is David defined as being an adulterous murderer? And is Peter being defined as one who denied Jesus three times? Did that ultimately define them? They sinned, didn't they? They were defined by their repentance and how God restored them to himself. Listen to John Calvin on this. He's got a quote I wanted to read to you. For who is there who's not guilty of these sins? Brent. Paul does not threaten all who have sinned, but all who remain unrepentant shall be excluded from heaven. All the threatenings of God's judgment call us to repentance with the promise that forgiveness is always ready with God. But if we continue in stubbornness, these sins will be a testimony from heaven against us. See the difference? If you continue in a lifestyle of stubborn habitual, unrepentant sin that defines and dominates you. Two things. You may not be a Christian and think you are, or you may be in a period of extreme disobedience and God will get you out of it through discipline. But in both cases, what do you need to do? If you're not a Christian, you need to repent. If you are a Christian, you need to repent. When you became a Christian, did you just repent the first time? Or is the life of a Christian always repenting? You're always saying no to sin. When you fail, when you struggle, when you sin, don't run away from God. Here's what i found over the years a lot of Christians do. When When a Christian fails miserably, our first thought is, how could I have done that? I feel so guilty. And I feel so guilty that I hate myself. And the last thing I want to do is be around Christians, and the last thing I want to do is pray and confess the sin. And I want to run away from God. Now, can you run away from God? Does God know what you did? Is God a big boy and can handle your sin? Maybe a kind of disrespectful way to put it. Don't run away from God. Run to God. If you're a Christian, is God displeased with what you did? Yes. But is he going to forgive you? Is he going to cleanse you? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, we confess our sins, he's faithful. And just to do what? He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes when you sin... Or when I sin big time. We ask for forgiveness and we know God forgives in our minds. But what do we sometimes still feel? We sometimes still feel the dirtiness. We feel the guilt. What does that passage of scripture say? He's faithful and just not only to forgive us but also to what? Cleanse. Cleanse us. I've met so many Christians over the years that have a hard time forgiving themselves, they'll say. And they'll just they they'll say, I don't know how God can forgive me for what I did. I've done something so bad, how can God forgive me? And I would say, Jesus on the cross took your sin. As heinous as it was, And he died for it. And that sin's nailed to the cross. And God takes it to the bottom of the ocean and takes it as far as the east is from the west. So did you sin? Yes. Was it disobedient to God? Yes. Was it a struggle? Yes. But are you beyond hope? No. Does Christ forgive you? Yes. Does Jesus cleanse you? Yes. Does God restore you and pick you back up? Yes. Does that mean you'll never struggle with it again? No. Does that mean you desperately need grace upon grace every day for the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does that mean that you need to walk by the Spirit? Okay. So this is the most realistic passage of Scripture. You and I will struggle with these sins. But if you're truly a Christian, these sins won't dominate you. They won't define you. They won't be the totality of your life. You may struggle with them from time to time, but they won't dominate you. And if they do dominate you, it may be evidence that you're not a Christian. And if you continue down that path, Paul says you won't get to heaven. So either way, you need to repent. And the, the, the promise of the gospel tonight is this. Anybody in this room tonight who feels like they're beyond the grip of God's grace... Jesus stands ready, willing, and able as the all-sufficient Savior to receive anybody who would come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus will never turn away anybody that comes to him in repentance and faith. Don't run away from Jesus. Run to Jesus and find his arms open wide. So, my teaching turned into preaching here for a little bit there. So, questions, comments, clarifications. And nothing about teenagers, please. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Torino, yes. Earlier, yes. It was, uh, when a good thing becomes a god thing, it becomes a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a god thing, it becomes a bad thing. Okay, that's the that's the quote from earlier. Or you can put it this way: when you turn something that's good into an idol, you're being disobedient. That other thing's a little bit more catchy. So I promise next week we're going to get into the fruit of the Spirit and we're going to spend each week on a different aspect. So next week we're going to talk about love and marriage. Love. (laughs) Marriage is what's brought us together. Yes, Brent. You know, the longer I'm on this earth, the more I realize there's two things that really are used by God to kind of expose me and rip Shortcomings wide open and my weaknesses and everything else. One is marriage. Okay. And the other is kids. Marriage and parenting? Because you really see the weaknesses, and you see at times, even with adult kids now, I see them do something or say something, and I think, oh, oh I know where that came from. <laughs> and yeah. Any other questions tonight? On the Ephesians that they point out, it says, Now that now this I say and testify in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why do they like just say the Gentiles? Well, okay, the, as the Gentiles do? Yeah. Sometimes when Paul uses that term Gentiles, it's kind of a code word for the, pagan, the pagans around you, because they may still technically be non-Jews, like Gentiles, because they're not they're not circumcised or Jewish. In that in that context, sometimes when Paul says, as the Gentiles do, he's talking about the pagan culture around them of Greeks that were into idolatry and debauchery and all those types of things. Not not just their ethnicity, but more the cultural aspect of the Gentile paganism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let me pray for us. And then um, I'm getting you done 10 minutes. So... Um, you get 10 minutes extra tonight. So, Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we know that this is a very um, penetrating passage of Scripture to our hearts because, Lord, we see specific sins. And, Lord, as we look at this list tonight, we all know that there's things we struggle with. We all know what those particular sins are that, that each of us deal with. And we, we struggle deep in our hearts. And, Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody in this room tonight or even watching on, on Facebook Live that struggles, that they would cry out to you. They wouldn't run from you, Jesus, but they would run to you. And they would evaluate their life in light of this list and that we would truly take these warnings to heart and that we truly would walk by the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. From Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. And so we ask for your power this week to live out these truths in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.